See, I can say things to him. I'm related. <laughs> well, this has been a message that uh, was kind of given to me a topic. And I've been spending a month thinking about it, listening to so many things on YouTube, on tapes, reading from magazines. And now I'm supposed to come and within the next 30, 35 minutes, take everything that I have just rammed in my head for the last four weeks and condense it to that. And many of you know, one of my weaknesses is one of my somewhat one of my strengths is I gather all of this and I just want to tell you take it all and just give it to you I can't he's told me I've got to be focused and I've worked hard on being focused Uh, but before we actually even get into the message part you may notice one of the members of the worship team is not here this morning, Beth Peterson. Uh, Beth and Aaron with Caleb and Micah uh, are in Idaho. Um, Beth's mother uh, was diagnosed with cancer. And so I want to lay that to you. We're going to pray here in a minute, but I want you to know that. Just be in prayer for them, especially for Beth's mom as she tries to determine what course that she wants to take with this, okay? Uh, so... In fact, this will be a good opportunity. Just take a few moments and just with our heads bowed and just in silence, let's just pray. Pray for your own needs. We got a good God in heaven who hears us. The Bible says our Lord Jesus Christ intercedes on our behalf day and night. Even when we aren't praying, he's speaking on our behalf day and night. So let's go to prayer. Dear gracious and kind Father, we come before you. Mixed emotions, joy, just as we sung about our hope in Christ, about the forgiveness of our sins, the love that you demonstrated when you sent your only son to pay the penalty for our sin. And we are truly grateful that when we chose to reject you, you extended your mercy to receive us. You are very concerned about the details of our life, the word says. Jesus says that if God cares about the birds of the sky and the flowers of the field that are here one day and gone the next, how much more does he care for you? You watch over us. You provide abundantly for us. And we give you thanks. And we recognize that even in the darkest and the despair that we may go through, there's hope, light that is ours because we have been redeemed by Christ. 
So, Lord, I pray for those who have needs. I pray for those who are facing sickness of some sort. Uh, Be with Beth's mother. Give them wisdom. Give them comfort. I pray for those who have had loss that uh, you will uh, dry the tears in their eyes. I also thank you for those blessings that you give us. Those blessings, they are simply a small taste of what eternity will be. And you're so kind that in this world of troubles, you show us a way. Be with us as we study your word this morning. Uh, We thank you for the word that you speak and you speak so clearly to us. It is in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, We're in the middle of missions month, uh, two weeks to go. Um, Our theme, if you don't remember what our theme is, is preparing for Jesus. There it is. Preparing for Jesus. I want to just, on the outset of this, just uh, uh, recognize someone who has made our presence so so known in the world. We have an interesting, I believe, missions committee here. The commission here, uh, they are more bent on just simply finding projects and supporting projects. Our missions team is bent on being involved in touching lives for eternity. When we say what our mission statement is, which is building people up in Christ, sending them out for Christ so that they may win others to Christ. That's our statement. Our missions committee takes that to heart. And I remember when I first came here in 2006, uh, Jim Twing was leading that. But I'm going to tell you something. There was something that happened in him as he began just leading and doing things in Oaxaca and then making his first couple trips to Uganda. A transformation began to happen in him a passion and a heart for something more than just simply laying floors or digging wells or building churches. It became more about winning people for Christ. It became more about people going and learning how to touch lives for the Christ. This past summer, I went to Uganda. I had the privilege of baptizing over 150 people That was hard. Fortunately, I had Luca there helping me catch him. Luca would catch him as I would dunk him and throw him back. It was like, it was almost like catching fish and throwing him up. And we were, and I was tired. I was so tired. But there was a joy there. There was a joy of going through Uganda and meeting and and encouraging pastors and church planters that they were raising up. 
there was an enthusiasm about speaking to a group of ladies every morning to hear the children quote 1 John 2. Transformation of life that were taking place. And we get to be a part of that. Mostly because of our missions committee and the leader of that missions committee and his direct involvement to make it happen. We're seeing people changed in Uganda, but the most important change that's taken place is in the lives and the hearts of those who support it and those who participate in it. This year's team that's going to get ready to go to Uganda, I'm going to tell you something. It's a great team, and they're going to be changed. Pray for them. So this morning we're talking about Preparing for Jesus. That's a reality. Our Lord Jesus Christ will return. Um, I, I've mentioned this to the youth group a lot uh, as we sit there. Because when I was their age, I read all of the second coming type books out there. And I was certain that the Lord was coming back when I was 17, when I was 18. 65. Almost. One month, 65. Hasn't returned. And I looked at them and I say, okay, guys, tell me. Is it a good thing that God hasn't, that Jesus hasn't returned? And they look at me with their strange look like, why are you asking us these kind of questions? Because I do. And I said, let me tell you. Second Peter says that the Lord is patient, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Had Christ returned in 1976, 1975, just look around. Those of you who were born afterwards, you wouldn't be here. Something dynamic in that, isn't there? That the Lord in his heart is open-ended in Christ's return so that more people could be ushered into the kingdom. And so that's why our theme is preparing for Jesus. Because Jesus will return. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And it's important for us to understand what we must do to be prepared for that. You saw the title of the message, Searching for an Identity in a Confused World. Psalm 8, David writes, When I consider the stars in the heavens, the works of your hands, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you take care of him. That seems to be the central question today, isn't it? What determines humans? The search for identity. What am I? So. That's a great question. 
It's caused a lot of controversy. It's caused a lot of anger. A lot of hostility. People being canceled. Protest. So that's my question. That's my question for you, for me, especially in a world where that's kind of become quasi in a sense. What is humans? Now we can look through a lot of different uh, sources. We can look at psychology. We can consider sociology. Uh, we can look at philosophy. That was a philosophy major. Uh, that may not help. Um, but we could look at the Bible. In fact, that's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to look at what the Bible says. Now, you may be thinking, well, that seems to be pretty simple, right? Not necessarily. Something I want to just go over with you briefly before we even get into any of this. Whenever we're studying the Bible, uh, depending on your personal persuasion, that can have an impact on how you see the Bible. For instance, in Catholicism, their authority is the Bible. Papal authority and tradition. It's called a three-legged stool. The Methodists, not to be outdone, they have four. For the Methodists, it is the Bible, reason, experience, and tradition. And not to be outdone, the Reformed faith even has their own. Bible, our own traditions, and our theologians. The problem with all of that, and it's something that is so important for you, that we not bring into Scripture something other than what Scripture says. In other words, we want Scripture to define what we believe and how we live, not how we live and what we believe define Scripture. And that's not as easy as you think. So when we think about just looking at the Word of God and reading the Bible, the first thing we always want to consider, we just read it as it is written. Plain language, plain words, what does it say? And that's what we'll do this morning. We're just going to read, and then we're going to extrapolate as we read it. Second one, whenever you study and you come up with an idea or an interpretation of a passage of Scripture, you check it. You check it within the pages of Scripture. Because if what you think it says contradicts another part of Scripture, maybe you better go back and look at it. Right? Because you see, this is the Word of God. And if it's the Word of God, the Word of God cannot contradict. 
So with that in mind, let's turn to Genesis 1. Because in Genesis 1, that's where we see the description or the definition of humans, of what we are. Genesis 1. Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2 begins like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of waters. We start with the idea of our design. In the beginning, God. We are not just some haphazard event that has evolved into who we are. And it doesn't matter. We weren't there. It doesn't matter whether you believe as I do dynamic fiat where God spoke and it was. Or whether you believe as some that there's a creative process behind it. There's still the same constant. God. In the beginning, God. And because there is a being, a personal being, someone with intelligence and reason who's able to bring everything into existence, there is meaning, there is purpose, and there is value. In the beginning, God. And so when we talk about who we are, what we are, we come back to him. In the beginning, God. And then we see the process that he goes through, whether day by day or what. There is the six days. And if you notice what he's doing during those six days is he's slowly crafting a place that his greatest creation might live and survive each day, each day until the sixth day. And on the sixth day, it says this. That turned to page. In verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Take note. God created them. There's a purpose. Whenever you see the word create, there's a purpose behind creation. You and I were created for a purpose. As we read and study scripture, we understand what that purpose is. That purpose is to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The purpose of our life is that God would demonstrate to all of creation the greatness and the fullness of his love. We love because God first loved us. God created them in his likeness, you and me. No other creature looks like us. No other creature stands in the presence of the creator like we do. 
We weren't created to simply serve God. We were created for something greater, something more, an intimate relationship. Because we are created, all humans have dignity. It's not based on what you do. It's not based on what you think. It's not based on how you look. Every human, from the moment of their conception, has dignity. Because we are created in the likeness of God. Not only are we created in the likeness of God, we're created diversely. Did you notice that? And he created them, male and female. Now, the first thing I want you to take note on that one is we all have the same dignity. Maleness isn't greater than femaleness. We're all created by the same God. We're all created by the same God with the same value, the same purpose, the same dignity. But we're diverse. We're diverse. He created them male and female. There is a difference. There's a huge difference. My wife reminds me of that all the time. And there is. Oh my goodness. There's something about how we think. Here it is. Though we are one in dignity, we are diverse in being complementary. Just flip over a couple pages to Genesis 2. In Genesis 2, verse 18, the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. The woman wasn't made lower than a man. Okay? The woman wasn't made above man. They were created both by God in very unique ways to carry out his purposes. Male and female. Society needs the gifts and the talents of both men and women. No matter what happens with your life, you have value. If you're a man, you have value. If you are a woman, you have value. And so God created woman from from man to complement man. And then comes the first great institution that society is built on. Marriage. And so God takes a man and takes a woman 
And it says this, and therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. He created marriage. Man, woman. Interesting, uh, people have said about the whole marriage debate, Jesus never said anything about it. Jesus spoke very loudly about it when Jesus affirmed that statement. In talking about divorce and how difficult it is with divorce, Jesus says, but God created marriage, one man, one woman. And it's on this, a man and a woman coming together to live out their lives together to bring about the plans and the purposes of God. The purpose of sex in marriage. It's the physical sign of trust between one man and one woman. Isn't it? It's me and my wife and we become one and that oneness is symbolic. It's a physical symbol of living a life together. One purpose, one direction. Bonded by physical intimacy. And when physical intimacy is interrupted or when physical intimacy is directed in different ways, it breaks the bond which affects society. That's the purpose of physical intimacy in a marriage. And it's to be done in a marriage. At a my first church, a little high school girl, and we were talking about that and in a class with them. I was talking about why marriage And she looked at me and she says, but it's only a ring. I can't even get mine off. Really, I can't. It's there. And so I took my ring off. I said, let me tell you about this ring. Every time I look at this ring, it's a reminder of the commitment that I made to my wife. Every time I look at this ring, it holds me fast. To that woman. Every time I look at this ring, it reminds me of the love that she has for me. Every time I look at this ring, it tells me I cannot walk away. The ring. It's not just a piece of jewelry, it's a symbol of something greater. And so God created marriage. And then God in our design commissioned us. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves. Those of you who have the fortune of becoming parents... How joyful is it 
if the relationship is right and new life comes from your union. Oh my goodness. When my two children were born, the best, best days of my life. When Alexander was born, I'll never forget this. He was born, they handed him to Christy for a few seconds, then they gave him to the nurse. The nurse then gave that boy to me, and I took that boy down where we cleaned him up, we did the measurements, and we waiting, and then I just held him. Just me and the boy. This 35-year-old boy now, and I still call him the boy. But as I'm holding him, all of a sudden, the nurse hands me the phone. And it's Christy saying, when are you going to bring Alex to me? There's something about life coming for me and Christy. Even if you're just, not just, I'm sorry, let me take that word just out. Because that's wrong. Even if you are an aunt or an uncle or even a friend, the joy of being involved in the birth of new life is thrilling, isn't it? That's part of God's design. Children were to come into this world through the love of a husband and a wife. That was designed. That's the way it was supposed to be. And after God commissions them to procreate and to fill the earth, he then provides for their needs. And God planted a garden in, the e- in Eden, in the east, And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. This is important. Because God created this earth so that we could live. God created this earth in its pristine order so that life could exist. We have a God of heaven who designed this. So that as we till it, as we work it, as we labor in it. It gives food. It gives nourishment. It gives strength. It gives life. That's his design, isn't it? His design, his design a world that men, women could live and live out their lives loving their God and loving each other. And he provided for our needs. And it was complete. Genesis 1.31 says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Very good. Think about it. The God of the universe, one of the ways he sees you, he sees you in who you are. The substance that you are. The you that's beneath the flesh. He sees you. And he says, 
You are very good. Talking about Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, and this is important. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. In other words, they saw themselves in their innocence as created by God. And they had nothing to be ashamed about. You need to consider that. That's the difficulty that we go through, isn't it? We live in a world where the world itself wants to shame us. You need to look in the mirror sometimes and don't worry about not having any hair. You need to look in the mirror sometimes and look beyond the skin and realize you have nothing to be ashamed about in who you are. No matter what your body type may be, no matter what your hairstyle may be, you are God's creation. I have a question for you here. So we kind of laid out this idea of, of us being created by God and this design that God has has developed, has, has created. And I, I need to ask you something because this is a, a, a big question. Because a lot of people want to try to maneuver and position God to be something that maybe God isn't. Uh, they may want to try to maneuver or aspects about the Lord Jesus Christ and describe Jesus that he isn't. So here's my question. After reading Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, is there anywhere in the Bible where God changes or alters his original design? Is there? We come up to 2023 and all of a sudden God's design has changed. Now what happened? It wasn't that God's design has changed. In fact, God's design is still here and we're the beneficiaries of a design that continues to happen in spite of us. We put seed in the ground and it produces plants. We labor with our hands and we are productive. There is still love between men and women. His design still reigns, doesn't it? In spite of us. So what happened? Choice. Our choice. Genesis 3, uh, we look at our choice. Let me, let me explain something. In creating us in his likeness, creating these humans, you and me, uh, 
these humans who were created to love God, there was something that is inherently important to understand. With love comes choice. If there is no choice, can you love? So when God created us, he created us with the ability to either choose him or reject him. So we read there in Genesis 2 that he created within the garden everything that was needed for them to survive. Everything that they needed for them to enjoy life. And in the middle of the garden he placed... The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You see, we could not be purely human if we didn't have the ability to either choose or reject God. And so we come to chapter 3. In chapter 3, it says this. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field and that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God say that? Well, no, he didn't say that. God says every tree in the garden you can eat from just not this one. Not this one. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God, you shall not, but God says you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. She added some things to it. But here's where it comes. And this is the issue. The devil says in his temptation, you will not die for God knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be open and you will be like him knowing good and evil you see the choice was do I remain faithful and do I trust the God who created me the God who created this place where I'm living and for And we don't know the time frame there, but for those times that they were in existence, everything that they needed and everything that would bring them pleasure was there. God was a provider, a good provider, a perfect provider. Would they choose him? Or will they choose their own passions, their own appetites? You see, don't put the blame here on the serpent. The blame goes to the woman. And no, women don't get you, but it goes greater to the man. See what happens? So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, do you see that? I get to make my own decisions. 
and what is running and moving her decisions, her appetites and her desires. That which God has already fulfilled, but it wasn't enough. Eve went against design. And after she had eaten the fruit, it says, and she gave some to her husband and he freely, my words, ate it. What is the sin? Is the sin the fruit? The sin is the rejection of a good God in his design and walking away from the one who loves us the most. Think about it. The God who created us, who gives us life, you and me, David says that we were formed, knitted together in our mother's womb in Psalm 139. He has a part in your existence just as much as in Adam and Eve as he's put his design out there. And like Adam and Eve, we choose our own passions, our own desires, and we reject the God who loves us. Here's what we notice. That whenever we reject God and we reject his design, it ultimately doesn't satisfy. Genesis 3, 7 says, Then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked. They were ashamed. That's why they try to hide. That's why they try to cover themselves with leaves. They were ashamed. Because they realized what they had done. And now they rightly were awaiting their condemnation. And so the Lord comes and he confronts them. And he says, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And then God goes through the consequences of what would happen to them. The first consequence was there would be enmity between them. Between what God created in the animals, between each other. Instead of being complimentary, their desires and their passions sometimes would make them at odds. There would be frustration. God told Adam that whatever you plant, it might, it might not bear fruit. It was symbolic of the frustrations that you would have in life because you went against God and his design. And then there would be separation. The last, think about this. Oh my goodness, think about this. For whatever time it was between Genesis 1 and Genesis 3, 
they had direct daily moment by moment fellowship with God. We see that when God, he, he would come into the garden. They had fellowship with God. And the last thing we read in Genesis 3 is what? He sends them out. And he shuts the garden up. And that shutting of the garment was, garden was much more than just you can't come into the garden. You can't come and get the tree of life. No, it's much more than that. It's representative of the separation between us and God. Because we choose, and we choose to reject God, we are under God's judgment. That judgment is now. It's now. Romans 1 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So how is God's judgment, how is his wrath being unleashed now? He says this, for what can be made known, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them in design. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things he has made so that we are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or gave thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Therefore, here's the judgment today. God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the lie about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the created creator who is blessed forever. Amen. In other words, God takes his hands off. We all reject God. We all walk away. But the degree of consequence is made according to the decisions that we make. And the further we walk away from God's design, the greater the frustration, the greater the consequence, the greater the judgment. Because God just says, if you want to go that way, I will let you. And that will be part of the punishment. But that's only a piece of it. There is also judgment that is yet to come. Hebrews 9.27 says, Just as it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. In Revelation 20 we read, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. 
And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Judgment. And no deeds you do will ever make up for rejecting God. It's not we can die and stand in his presence and say, but I know you have no defense. We're guilty. We're dead men walking. It's not a matter of if we will suffer hell. It's a matter of when we will suffer hell. We are simply sitting in the jail cell counting the days as they go by. So is there hope? Of course there is. Here's our hope. It's our theme, preparing for Jesus and his return. (laughs) Oh my goodness. How do we prepare for Jesus' return? The first thing we do is we... We be reconciled, reconciled with Jesus, with God. Paul says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled with God. We all can be reconciled to God. That option is there. Like the prodigal son, you can go home. Just turn and go. But before we turn, we've got to realize something. You cannot change your condition. You cannot make up for your rejection of God. There's nothing you can do. We need a redeemer. We need one to take the wrath for himself. So that we might be forgiven. God in his holiness cannot allow sin to go unpunished. So through one act of grace. Wrath is satisfied. And God extends mercy. To any and to all who would receive it. Through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. His only begotten son. The payment for sin has been satisfied. And those who would return to Christ will be redeemed. First John 2 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. Paul says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, we can't change our condition, but God sends our only hope, the Redeemer. And we are reconciled with God when we trust in Jesus as our Redeemer. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, 
He gave the right to become children of God. That's where it starts. It starts with you coming back to God through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ so that your sins might be forgiven. That is available to anyone. It is God who is reaching out to us, inviting us to come home. Like this father in the story of the prodigal son, the father going and waiting, looking, come home, come home. And it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what the past is. The blood of Jesus Christ satisfies that. Come home. Just come home. So be reconciled. Then in, in preparing for Jesus, the next step is to be determined. Now that we are reconciled with the creator, we must be determined to live according to his design. This I just don't understand. Those who want to repaint Jesus into something he isn't as if, okay, I, Jesus accepts me. He accepts me so I can keep living like I did. I can live outside of his design. If you're reconciled with God, your heart's desire will be to live according to his design. You need to be determined to live according to the design of God. What does that mean? It means that whatever state I'm in, from that step forward, I'm going to live according to the design of God. If I'm a single person, I'm going to value that singleness that I am, and I'm going to live it in a way that honors God and that fulfills his purpose as I work and live in this society. Uh, Micah 6.8 tells us kind of the, the guidelines for all humans, single, married, but for singleness we are to do what? We are to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly before God. If I've been married like in the past and now I've been divorced and I'm with a new, what am I supposed to do? You be the husband that God designed you to be with that wife. You can't go back, but you can't go forward. You can't go forward. You be the wife to that man that you're with now, as God designed you to be. As parents, you start raising your sons, your daughters to know and to love God. From that moment forward, doesn't matter what's done in the past, you've got to move ahead. Let me tell you something, though. Now that you're reconciled with the Creator and you've determined to live according to His design, it will not be easy because we are damaged people. We all have scars. 
We all have sin that has impacted and touched our lives in so many different ways. Some of those scars are self-inflicted by our own choices, our own desires, our own sin. Others, we are the victims of others and sometimes even of a society that has pushed us that way. It will not be easy. We will some days walk, some days we will fall flat on our face. We struggle with the flesh and we have to be determined daily to live according to God's design. Paul says, I, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. That's the struggle. Just like Eve, you look at sin and it's pleasing to the eyes and you get to make the choice. That wages war with who you are. That wages war with your relationship with God. You have got to walk by the Spirit. Paul says, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are these. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Look at this. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Here's the unique thing about this. We have to make a determinate effort to walk under God's design. But the nice thing about it, he walks along with us. Walk with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in the heart of every one of you who profess your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is he who will lead you. It is he who will guide you. It is he who will convict you. It is he who will teach you. You're not in this alone, but you are in it. And you've got to do something or you're just going to be overwhelmed. By, of all things, yourself. Then be supportive. The writer of Hebrews says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day draw near. You not only have the Holy Spirit, guess what? You may not like what I'm about to say. You got me. You got me. You see, I'm part of a church, a community of believers. I struggle just like you struggle, and I need you to hold me up. And you need me. There are times when you're going to be falling on your face, and guess what? You're not going to need a lecture. You're going to need a hand. That's what the church is supposed to be, isn't it? Yeah, we confront sin. 
And, and we even discipline people who will not turn their lives and repent back to Christ. But our main efforts is to walk alongside everyone, to love and good deeds. We are to confront, even when we confront each other, we are to confront each other with gentleness, lest we should be tempted and fall ourselves. And then lastly, as we prepare ourselves for Jesus, we need to be out preparing others. We are to be a witness. Paul, I mean, Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Uh, someone asked a question and we talked about it at staff meeting. And this person you know, made a comment that would his transgender child be welcomed here? What's the answer to that, do you think? See, I mean, my... Shaking my hand mood. What's the answer to that? You better be saying yes. Just like Jesus sat down with the most rejected woman in that day. This woman at the well who was a Samaritan. And Jews don't have any dealings with Samaritans. This Samaritan woman who was coming up to the well at noon and not at nine because she was the outcast of her own people because she had been sleeping around. Five husbands and living now with a man that wasn't her husband. And the Lord Jesus Christ just sits down with her and just talks and just encourages and, and yeah, he doesn't compromise. He talks to her about her relationship. But in the end, the woman found salvation because of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe in our efforts to be holy, we forget that there's a lot of grace that needs to be handed out. We are to be a witness and that we are to witness with grace because quite frankly, people, if not for that person who shared Christ with you, where would you be today? If not for that person who gently came alongside you and helped you come to know and grow in your faith, where would you be today? I don't care who comes through that door. That's an opportunity for me to overwhelm them with the grace of God. Right, Cora? <laughs> Cora's in our youth group now on Sundays. And her first Sunday, boy, did I, I just, her and her brother, just, it was John. And you know why I do it? It's not that I'm just trying to be weird. It's not that I'm trying to be obnoxious. I want to smother people with the love of Jesus Christ. 
This is who we are. We are people who have been reconciled to God who is now attempting and growing in his design. Went a little long, I told you. I hope the message may not have been a political message. Didn't need to be. I hope the message will be one to encourage you. Maybe convict you. But here's the point. God designed you to be loved. To be loved by him and to be loved by others. Why would you keep walking away from him? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of being your son and us to be your children. A relationship that is purchased through your son, Jesus Christ, of which we are now heirs of the kingdom. And that relationship is secure because You are at work in us through the Holy Spirit. Lord, if any are here this morning who needs to be reconciled, I would ask that you would speak in their hearts. Lord, for us who know you, strengthen our faith in you. Use us in our walks to support others and give us a compassion For those who don't know you, we pray in your name. Amen.